Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. And I should like to draw our attention this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 this morning. We will read in a moment the first 12 verses. It's amazing to me to think that we are already in Acts chapter 20. Only eight more chapters though, and we will have completely made it through the Acts of the Apostles. And as we plant ourselves in Acts 20 this morning, let's remember for a moment uh, where we've come from. We began with Jesus and His disciples and Him speaking to them before He ascended into heaven. saying this in chapter 1, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that really is the trajectory that Acts takes. It starts out in Jerusalem and as the believers are gathered in Jerusalem, they're in the upper room, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they go out and they begin preaching this gospel of Jesus Christ. And Peter has this great sermon in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit uses His sermon so much that those who are there who hear that gospel are cut to the heart. And they cry out, what must we do? Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, all of you. Repent and believe. Peter and the disciples, though, uh, do not have it easy. They continue to spread this message, and Peter and John in particular heal a lame beggar. The authorities don't like that too much. The Sanhedrin, the Jews in particular, don't like that too much. And so they begin to harass Peter and John before the council. But the believers, but Peter and John, the disciples, they continue to stick to the message. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
and they count it joy that they've been found worthy to suffer for that name. The believers encountering this opposition have to pray for boldness. How much like us today, to pray for boldness, to continue to spread out this message. They pray for boldness. God answers that prayer and continues to build His church. Continues to grow His church. Not without difficulty, we remember Stephen, one of those who were chosen to be a deacon in the church, who was seized, who has this great sermon in Acts chapter 7 where he, he accuses the Jews and says, you are doing exactly what your fathers have done. Your fathers go through the Old Testament, look back, they have rejected God's sent messengers over and over and over again, and you've done that, but even worse, you've done it with the Messiah who, whom he sent. They didn't like that too much, and so they stone Stephen to death, the first Christian martyr who is there being stoned, who looks up into heaven and sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God and says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. This was all done even with the oversight of maybe the most well-known Jew, Saul. And as the church there in Jerusalem is continuing to grow and continuing to expand, Saul does not like that too much. And the church goes out into Samaria with Philip, proclaiming the gospel to the Samaritans. They believe and they are saved. Even the conversion of an Ethiopian eunuch, Philip has the chance to tell him the gospel of Jesus Christ and he is saved. And as the gospel spreads, Saul hates it. He doesn't want to see the gospel go any further, and so he's going to, to put Christians in prison until he has an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He falls to his knees. And he hears those words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. And then we know Ananias is chosen by God to go to Saul to tell him the gospel, and Saul believes, and it's like scales, it says, falls from his eyes. He sees for the very first time who Jesus is. Beautiful picture, isn't it, of what happens to all believers when they believe that God opens their eyes to the truth? And so then Saul begins to preach this word. And the, the church continues to grow. It continues to spread. And even the Gentiles hear this news. Cornelius, Peter, the Apostle Peter goes to Cornelius. And Cornelius and all of his household are saved. And finally, Paul joins in on this. And goes on three missionary journeys. Spreading the gospel, planting churches, seeing people be saved, seeing the gospel go forth, seeing God's glory spread all over the known world. Exciting times, yet trying times as well. And that's where we meet Paul and 
chapter 20, in the middle of his third missionary journey. And so let's read this together. Let's stand together and and read it together this morning. Acts 20, verses 1 through 12. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. When Paul had gone up, had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit so that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. How does the church persevere? How does the church go on? That is a very important question because we must realize this morning that we are here because the church has persevered. It has gone on. We have not started anything new here. We're not starting anything new this morning but we stand in the line, the heritage of Christ's church, and it is an important heritage. Since its birth in the New Testament until now, the church has continued on, and it has continued on in the shadow of the Roman Empire. It has continued on even when Christianity was made the official faith 
of the state under Constantine. It has continued on through many a debate and many a church council and church schism. It has continued on through the Middle Ages of what some might call the Dark Ages. Even then, Christ and His church continued on even in the times when it looked the darkest. The church has continued through the Reformation when the best elements of Western medieval Christianity were trying to correct the worst elements of Western medieval Christianity. It has continued on through the Age of Enlightenment with the emphasis on man's experience and man's intellect as the supreme authority. It has continued on through the rise of modernism. It has remained even in the midst of now postmodernism where People say that truth is relative. And it's still here. It's still here even after this century where it's said that there have been more martyrs for the Christian faith in the past 100 years than the whole life of the church put together. Looking down through the ages... Think with me for a moment. When was it that Christ's church had it easy? When was it when there were no problems, no controversies, nothing that threatened the church? When was the golden age? The time that we would like to go back to, the time when everything was easy and nothing ever got in the way or hindered the church from spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ? When was it that Christ's church could just coast along and not have to endure, not have to persevere, not have to press ahead? How has the church been able to continue on, to persevere? I believe we have to go back to Matthew 16. The church has persevered simply because of what Christ promised when He said, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gate of hell shall not prevail against it. Christ is building His church, and we are not on the defense My friends, no, we are on the offense. We are the ones bursting through the gates of hell with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We are the ones entrusted with this good news to herald it to the whole world and so pierce the darkness with its light. We are the ones placed here as an outpost of heaven on earth, an embassy representing the kingdom of God. And within this embassy are citizens of this kingdom who are also ambassadors for Christ, who are imploring people to be reconciled with God. The church perseveres because it is built upon Christ, because it loves Christ, and because its priority above everything else is to live for Christ while being made more and more and more like Christ. Do not believe that saying that all good things must come to an end. Because the truly good things, the best things, will never come to an end. Which means His church, God's people, Christ's body, and His bride will never come to an end. 
Acts 20 is a major shift in Paul's ministry in the book of Acts. Up to this point, we've seen Paul and his team traveling to various different regions, various different towns, bringing with them the gospel of Jesus Christ, telling others about God's grace that has come through Christ so that they could be saved. And in all those various places, we've seen local churches planted. We've seen brand new works begin, springing up all over the place in the Roman Empire. When things are new and fresh, there is an excitement. There is a buzz. There is a motivation simply because something's new. That has been the focus so far. New churches, planting churches, beginning churches. And now Paul's focus shifts. We'll not see more and more churches planted by Paul now. We'll see Paul go back to those churches. We'll see Paul minister to churches and such a way that he is going to help them persevere, help them go on in the world. And think about it here, such early on in Christianity, such early on, the infancy of the church, and they still needed to hear this message of persevere, press on, don't give up. That's what the world would love to say to us, give up, church, give up. How many things in this world have started and stopped, started and stopped? Christ's church, however, has not stopped. Paul's desire is that churches be built up. His desire is to see healthy churches. His desire is to see churches who are living in this world the way that God has designed them to live in this world. This was not an easy ministry, but yet it is a necessary ministry for the church to persevere. Do we need to persevere? Do we need to go on? Do we need to press ahead? If God's word teaches us anything, and if Paul's ministry tells us anything, we know the answer is yes. But do we ever lose sight of that? Do we ever forget that? Do we ever let down our guard and say, it's much easier just to coast along? Paul never said, what is the easiest thing for me to do with the churches that have been planted? He didn't say, what is the most convenient way for me to minister to these churches? Or he didn't even say, what are the most convenient decisions that I can make? He didn't do that because he knew much was at stake. God's glory was at stake. The name of Christ, which we bear as the church, was at stake. So what do we learn about how we go on in this world as Christ's church from Paul's ministry? Two principles this morning, two principles. You can find them there in your bulletin. Number one, we are to remain encouraged despite persecution. We are to remain encouraged despite persecution. I heard this quote. It says this, for Christians in the West, I 
wish persecution. I couldn't believe what I heard from that statement. There I was watching this older Serbian man on my computer screen with a thick accent wishing upon the churches of the West. So, (laughs) wishing upon churches like us, wishing upon us that we would experience persecution. Who would you wish persecution on? Your worst enemy? Someone you is someone you think is deserving of a little persecution, deserving of a little hardship, deserving of a little struggle? And here is what hit me like a ton of bricks as I heard this man say this. He said this not out of malice, he said this because he loved Christ and he loved Christ's church. He was not wishing persecution upon us because he hates us. He was wishing persecution on us as a Christian pastor from Serbia because he loved us. Because he did not view persecution as a detriment or deterrent to Christ's church. He saw it as the best thing that could possibly happen to us as a church. What is your attitude towards persecution? What do you think about persecution? Is that a source of of thankfulness in your life? Lord, thank you that we are not experiencing persecution. That somehow we think that might show God's favor upon us. God is blessing us. Rather, it should pause, make us pause for a moment and listen to God's word. Matthew 5.11, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Persecution in those verses is not a bad thing, not a thing to be avoided, not a thing to run from, but it's actually something that demonstrates God's blessing, something that actually is showing that you are a part of the kingdom of heaven, showing that you are one who is desiring to live a godly life in Christ. And this is exactly where Acts 20 places us. It places us immediately following some actions of persecution toward the church. Possibly twenty to 25,000 people had just congregated together and dragged two Christians in before them to accuse them, to threaten them, to harass them, to persecute them. And all the while, for about two hours, they're chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is the uproar that Luke mentions in that verse one, verse 1 of chapter 20. It was a great disturbance among the people of Ephesus. They acted out. They lashed out against the Christian with great numbers and with a great voice. What would our response be to such an action? If we were to put ourselves in the shoes of the Christians in Ephesus... When facing persecution, we would like to think that we have every right and a very good reason to be discouraged. 
that we have every reason to be despairing or downcast. That it is a good excuse to throw a pity party for ourselves. That is the danger of persecution when we let it discourage our hearts and distract us from who God wants us to be in the world. With that kind of response, we shrink back from doing what God wants. But what does Paul do? In those moments, after persecution, he goes to the church and he encourages them. In fact, he not only does this in Ephesus, but he goes back to those regions where the other churches had been planted, back to those places where there, have, there has been persecution, and he encourages them with many words. Persecution was not to be a discouragement to the church. Rather, Paul encourages them despite the persecution. He is saying that persecution doesn't discourage us, that it doesn't distract us, that it doesn't cast us down headlong into despair. No, in fact, the opposite. We draw encouragement in the midst of it, and the church becomes more effective in the middle of persecution. God so uses persecution in the life of the church to positively build His church. He uses persecution so that the church has a greater impact on the world. Persecution doesn't diminish the church. It makes the church stronger and resilient and encouraged and even more confident in the world where God has placed her. Persecution is meant to bring encouragement to our souls. And this is exactly what Paul does. He encourages the souls of the saints. He encourages the church by helping them to see the greater encouragement that they have in Christ. That's the problem, isn't it? That's the problem that we struggle with. Because somehow we've trained ourselves to determine how good our life is by the circumstances that go on in our life or the things that happen in the world around us. We never learn, do we? I mean, how often do I look at the circumstances in my life? How often do I look at the circumstances going on in the world and am discouraged by them? We need an encouragement that's going to last, an encouragement that transcends those circumstances, and we have that encouragement in Jesus Christ. Do you know that encouragement in Christ. My dear friend, I would dare say, if you do not know encouragement in Christ, you do not know encouragement at all. You have no idea of what encouragement truly is because Jesus Christ is the fountain, the source of all true encouragement. Where do we find this kind of encouragement in Christ. We find it in the gospel itself. We find it because of Christ. Dead sinners are forgiven their sin and given new life to live for the sake of the ever-present, all-sufficient King, Jesus Christ. In the middle of these verses, we're told that Paul comes uh, to this region in Greece more specifically, we know from other things that Paul has written that this region of Greece, there's the city of Corinth, and Paul stays in Corinth for 
three months. Corinth, the church that has gone through a lot of problems, a lot of divisions, but they've come back together now and, and are on the right track. And so Paul visits them for three months, and it was during these three months that Paul writes the epistle to the Romans. And I'm fascinated there because I think in Romans 6, we have a beautiful picture of encouragement in Christ. If you want to turn there with me for a moment, Romans 6, I'm going to begin reading in verse 4. But perhaps this is a good snapshot, a good demonstration. If you want to know encouragement in Christ, what it looks like, here it is. Romans 4, 6. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the encouragement that Christians have in Christ. Is this the encouragement that you have? Is this the encouragement that you know? Or are you on the roller coaster ride of trying to find some encouragement from yourself amidst of all of the ups and downs of the circumstances in your life? Is this the encouragement that you know? If not, let me say today that I don't want Anything to stand in your way from this encouragement. Nothing to stand in your way of of coming to Christ, putting your faith in Him, turning from your sin, believing that Jesus Christ died to save sinners, that He rose again from the dead on the third day, that He has accomplished everything that you need in order to stand righteous and blameless and guilt-free before the holy God of the universe and so be welcomed into His family knowing His grace, knowing His favor is upon you, not because of anything that you have done, but because of everything that Christ has done on your behalf. That is the encouragement that I'm offering to you today. Jesus Christ, Him crucified and risen again from the dead. It's the encouragement that Christ brings of a clean conscience. Do you realize that that's what we have to offer as Christians that nobody else can offer in this world? A clean conscience. What does everyone else in the world say you have to do? You have to find your way back to God. You have to do some works. You have to, you have to do something in order to get to God. What do we say? Jesus Christ has done it all. He's done everything that you need. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is you look to Him, you put your faith in Him, and He will forgive you. 
He will take away that guilt. You can never take that guilt away on your own. Only Jesus Christ can take away that guilt. Only He can clean your conscience. Only He can bring you into the family of God. This is the encouragement the church knows. It's the encouragement that Paul knew. But it's the encourage, this encouragement does not stop persecution from happening. Even in these verses, there's still a plot made by the Jews to seek his life. And Paul somehow learns about it before he sets sail for Syria, decides to go through Macedonia instead. Persecution is still going on in the church. And so Paul changes his course here. Instead of going to Syria, Paul is trying to make his way back to Jerusalem. He's trying to head back there. And the reason why he's trying to go back to Jerusalem is that he's been collecting an offering for the church in Jerusalem from all of these churches from different areas. And that's why we see this team. You see Paul's team here in verse 4. All of the different men that are listed Sopater the Berean, from that church that uh, diligently searched the scriptures to see if the things that Paul was, Paul was saying was true. He was sent from the Berean church with their gift. We have two men from Thessalonica, Aristarchus and Secundus. And interesting there, you look at those names, Aristarchus, we see that word aristocracy from there. Aristarchus, uh, probably very high in society, someone who was very wealthy, who was very well-to-do in society. And you have this other man named Secundus. You can even see in that word there, second. And oftentimes, slaves were named Secundus. They weren't first, they were second. You're not on top, you're underneath, you're second. And so I think with those two names, beautiful picture here of these two men sent from the church of Thessalonica showing just what kind of unity the gospel brings to people. It's not about social status. It's about the fact that they both belong to Jesus Christ and they want to deliver this gift from their church together. Aristarchus was also the man we just saw in chapter 19 who was drugged into the amphitheater in Ephesus. Also have Gaius and Derby. Uh, of, of Derby and Timothy from uh, Paul's companions there. And then Asians, this Tychicus and Trophimus. All these sent by these churches with this gift that Paul is carrying back to Jerusalem. And he sends them on ahead to Troas, but they sail to Philippi and stay there for a time until they, until they meet up with them. But even here in these names, we see this sense of encouragement because Paul was carrying this gift to the Jerusalem church to encourage the church. I think we see from these verses that encouragement not only persisted even in the midst of persecution, but that the ministry of encouragement was absolutely vital to the life of the church. Is the ministry of encouragement vital in the life of this church? And are you a part of that ministry of encouragement? Do you see that we are those who are depending upon one another for encouragement? 
Do you see that your brothers and sisters need you here to be encouraged by you, dear Christian? We definitely, definitely need this encouragement, particularly if we are to face persecution and affliction. So encourage one another. Don't let today go by. Don't let this week go by. Encourage someone with the encouragement that you have in Jesus Christ. And what does this do when we do this? It brings us closer together. It brings in more unity into the church. I didn't finish the quote that I said earlier that this Serbian pastor made. And so let me finish it now. Here is what he said in full. For Christians in the West, I wish persecution. Then you will know the sweetness of Christ. Oh, how I long to know the sweetness of Christ. Oh, how I long for us together to know the sweetness of Christ. Because when we know the sweetness of Christ, our Savior, we will remain encouraged. Number two this morning. We are to remain comforted despite death. We are to remain comforted despite death. We know that Paul is trying to make his way to Jerusalem, but he sails away to Philippi for a time. He sends his team on ahead to Troas. And, and notice there, just uh, in verse 5, there's a slight change in the pronouns. It goes back to this us and we. It appears that Luke, again, joins Paul on his missionary journey. And so now he's accompanying Paul to uh, they're in Philippi, and then eventually when they get, they get to Troas as well. And as they get to Troas, they stay there for seven days, and we learn some things about Christian worship, don't we, that is being practiced there in Troas, that in fact we still practice today. It says the church met on the first day of the week. That is, they got together as a church on Sunday. Sunday became known as the Lord's Day. Because it is the day in which Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. This would have had a big impact, particularly on the Jewish Christians, because their day of worship would have changed. They who used to worship on Saturday, on the Sabbath, they now change and set aside time on Sunday as their day of worship. All because of Jesus Christ. That's why they're meeting on the first day of the week. They're also gathered together to break bread. That's a euphemism being used for their practice of the Lord's table or communion. It appears that this is one of the specific reasons why they had come together. To partake in this ordinance that was commanded by Jesus Christ himself. And each time they broke bread, as it were, they were making the gospel visible. Their worship also included teaching. And with the Apostle Paul in their midst, he was the one doing the teaching that night. Since he intended to depart the next day, we might understand why he prolonged his speech until midnight. He had much to instruct the church on. He did not want to leave anything out. 
this most likely was the last time that he was going to see them. So he wanted to leave them with as much instruction as he could. And this is where our event gets a little interesting. Everything up to this point, relatively normal. Nothing out of place. This is what the church always does. Gathers together to worship, breaks bread. It's devoted to the apostles' teaching. Then the attention of the event goes to a young man named Eutychus. And there is a little bit of irony put in this event because Eutychus, that name, means fortunate or good fortune or lucky. Which I find to be ironic because of the unfortunate event that takes place that night. Eutychus being called a young man probably places him somewhere between the ages of 7 and 14. And just before we're introduced to Eutychus, we're given an important detail that fills in some of the questions we might have. It it says that the upper room where they were meeting in Troas had many lamps in it. Now in those days, those would have been oil lamps. It could be that there were so many lamps because there were so many people. But whatever the reason, the oil lamps quite possibly would have made the room very warm. And because they are oil lamps, they give off a fume, and so it could have been quite stuffy as well. This is why Eutychus is found sitting at the window. It's very reasonable to think he was there to get a bit of fresh air while Paul talked, to stay cool, maybe even to try to stay awake. But whatever the reason, Eutychus was overcome by a deep sleep. He couldn't resist it. It came upon him, and he was so tired, he could not stop it. And it happens while Paul keeps going on and on and on. You know, Paul was good at a lot of things. But there's some encouragement I take from Paul in this. Uh, It took Paul all night to make Eutychus fall asleep. It only takes me about five minutes to put some people to sleep. Eutychus being in a very precarious position, sitting by the window, has the worst thing happen to him. Has the most tragic thing happen to him. Being overcome by sleep, he slips out of the window and falling from the third story of the house, he lands in a heap upon the ground. We can only imagine the shock and the horror that was associated with this event. Imagine the reaction of the church as one of their own, one of their youth, one who held promise for the future of the church, was involved in this tragic event says that Eutychus was taken up dead. I take this to mean that Eutychus died. I mean really died. Luke, whose occupation was one of being a physician, did not say they took him up as if he was dead or like he had died. No, he was dead. There was no question. He wasn't almost dead. I take it to mean Eutychus was dead. So what does Paul do with this event that's taken place before him? Amazingly, Paul goes down to the young man and does not even appear 
to hesitate, but goes over to this pile of flesh on the ground. We're not even sure how disfigured he might have been after a three-story fall, but that does not stop Paul from immediately embracing him. Some other Bible translations say that Paul goes down and throws himself upon the youth. This is significant. Paul embracing this youth, he's putting himself in the line of Elijah and Elisha. Remember back 1 Kings 17 that we read when Elijah lays himself, stretches himself upon the youth? Elisha does the same thing in 2 Kings 4. Both of these prophets for the Lord who spoke the word of the Lord. And I love what it said there in 1 Kings 17 this morning from the widow of the son who was raised. She says to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Paul here is teaching this church and put a great way for the church to know the words that Paul is speaking in his mouth are truth. He's also put in the same line as Peter. Peter, we've seen, raised Dorcas from the dead in the book of Acts. It also puts him in line with Jesus. Jesus Christ himself raised people from the dead. Jesus Christ himself was raised from the dead. And it makes me remember and think of something. It makes me think God's business is raising dead people to life. It's what God does, and it's completely astounding to us because we view death as the end, death as final. We fear death and would do everything we can to forget about death. Death is is an inescapable curse upon us, but there is one who overcomes death. There is one who can reverse the curse of death. There is one for whom death is not the end, death is not final, but is miraculously overcome. And Paul, throwing himself upon the broken and battered and bruised body of this child, and the child being brought back to life, demonstrates that this was not Paul's power. This was not some trick that Paul was able to conjure up. No, this was the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ working through Paul. Christ's power over death was on display through Paul that night. And there is Paul laying over this child with the church watching all that's going on. And all of a sudden, Paul says, do not be alarmed. What a preposterous thing to say. Do not be alarmed. Paul, do you know what we have just witnessed? Are you aware that we have just seen a young man plummet out of a third-story window to his death right before our very eyes? Don't you know that we are bearing witness, seeing with our own eyes the damage that has been done to him, and you're telling us not to be alarmed? Are you telling us to pretend like we, we haven't just witnessed a horrific and grotesque event? You know, this word that Paul uses here, alarmed, is used four times in the Bible, and three of those Four times, it's used specifically dealing with a person being raised from the dead. It would tell me 
that being alarmed or causing a commotion or being upset by death is the natural response of mankind toward death. Paul, don't you understand that being alarmed after such a death is how people normally respond? But Paul gives us the reason why they should not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. Or, do not be alarmed, he's alive. What greater words could he have comforted the church with than those words? So what's the point of this event? Why does Luke include this event in the book of Acts? Is it because it makes an interesting story? Is it simply because it's a supernatural, miraculous story? Is Luke rebuking preachers and pastors, telling us not to preach so long and not to be so boring? I don't think Paul was being boring that night and someone still fell asleep. Is Luke rebuking churchgoers, telling them the danger of falling asleep in church? Is he warning you to stay awake during your pastor's sermon? I do not believe that this is the warning, not to be like Paul, and I don't believe the warning is don't be like Eutychus either. I believe something bigger is happening here. I believe that this event is actually meant to take us to the foot of the cross. I believe that this event is to make us ponder anew and afresh the sacrifice of Christ. When we take time to meditate upon that cross, we become aware of the fact that Jesus Christ was betrayed by one of His own disciples. We see Him who was tried unjustly in the courts of mankind. We find Him who was beaten and bruised and mocked and spat upon. We behold Him who bore a crown of thorns pressed into His brow. We gaze upon the nails being driven into His hands and into His feet. We bear witness to Him suspended between earth and heaven, hanging from the cross. We hear the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We encounter Him sighing with the pronouncement, it is finished. And Him giving up His Spirit. We feel the earth tremble and shake. We look to see the spear pierce his side with the flow of water and blood poured out upon the ground. We find his limp, lifeless body removed from the tree and placed in a tomb. Haven't we just witnessed the most horrific and grotesque event? Haven't we experienced one of the most tragic events in history put on display before our very eyes? Are we to pretend like that hasn't happened? Are we to say or even think, well, it's really not that bad? Are we just, trying to, are we just supposed to get over it and move on in life? No, do not be alarmed, 
He's alive. That is why I believe the raising of Eutychus is in the Bible, because it is his resurrection event that points us to the resurrection event. And it is the resurrection event that brings the greatest comfort and the greatest consolation to our souls and to our hearts. It is we who need to hear those words every time we get together, because it is by these words, he's alive, that we are able to go on, that we are able to persevere, that we are able to stare death in the face with absolute confidence and say, you will not have the last laugh. You are not the end. You are not final because I belong to one who has overcome sin and death and the grave. You can't touch me. I belong to Christ. This is the comfort that we receive from one another. What is it? What is it that I see when I look at you, my fellow Christian? Why do I want to see you? And why do I want you to see me? Because every time I look at you, Every time I talk with you, every time I have sweet spiritual fellowship with you, I am engaging with one who has been resurrected from the dead. I am engaging with one who was once dead in trespasses and sin, but now God has made you alive in Christ and we share in the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Do not be alarmed. We are alive. Paul almost nonchalantly appears to go back to what he was doing after he raised his Eutychus from the dead, doesn't he? <laughs> well, Paul had gone up, he broke bread and eaten, conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And then we come to that last verse. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. It appears that Luke likes to talk this way. There was not a little disturbance, meaning there was a great disturbance. <laughs> now they were not a little comforted. It's interesting here, though, that this negation is built around a word, and the word is moderately. It could just easily have been translated, they were not moderately comforted. The Christians were not moderately comforted by Paul's actions of raising Eutychus from the dead. Which makes me think, do we, do I, ever settle for being moderately comforted? How many Christians today settle for being moderately comforted? They settle for being a little comforted when a greater and better comfort is offered to them by God. How many, set, how many of us settle for some quasi-spiritual, quasi-Christian form of comfort in the attempt to satisfy our souls? If we are truthful, do we like little or moderate comfort because we don't have to be vulnerable? Because we don't have to be transparent. 
because we don't have to change, because we don't have to sacrifice, because we don't even really have to be a Christian or obedient to God's Word to receive that kind of comfort. And how many Christian-isms are out there that too many people draw comfort from when really you start to pull back all the layers, you realize that that's just man-centered comfort rather than comfort that comes from God. And all man-centered comfort only masquerades as true and great comfort because it can never really produce the comfort that we need. The great comfort we need comes from God through Christ. It's not us trying to comfort ourselves. It's God comforting us. And if He is able to bring abundant comfort to our lives in the midst of death, What is it that we're going to go through? What is it that you're going to encounter? What hardship, what tribulation, what difficulty, what affliction is there that will come upon us that will strip us of such a great comfort? Nothing can take away this great comfort. None of these things, hardships, difficulties, tribulations, can touch us because of the hope of the resurrection that permeates our lives through Jesus Christ. I leave us with these words, 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. And with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God, for we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that we would find great comfort from the resurrection. Great comfort from knowing that Death is not the end. Death is not final. Death does not triumph. Because Jesus Christ has triumphed first and foremost. And that we would be encouraged and comforted by those in our midst who know this resurrection, who know this truth, who have even this hope. that you would use encouragement and that you would use comfort in the life of our church to help us persevere and help us see the role that we have to play in encouraging one another and comforting one another. Continue to teach us to do this more effectively as we seek to show your love to one another. We pray this in Jesus' name.